0: Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell pouring out your serving of pure distilled intoxicating and occasionally delicious history. Hello and welcome to another episode of Single Malt History with Gareth Russell. In today's episode, we're joined by novelist Jean Findlay, who has very kindly stopped by to discuss her new novel. But before we get there, the day of recording is the 20th of July, specifically 2022, making it the 482nd anniversary of Henry VIII's marriage to his fifth wife, Catherine Howard. I wrote my postgraduate dissertation on Catherine and also wrote a biography of her, Young and Damned and Fair, and if you are listening to this before the 5th of August or August 5th, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're dipping in from, uh, let's say August 5th, 2022, head on over to my Instagram account, underscore Gareth Russell, two S's, two L's, all one word, underscore Gareth Russell to enter a competition for a free signed giveaway off young and damned and fair I thought for today I would begin by reading a little extract from that book describing the events of Catherine's wedding. This is taken from chapter 8, The Queen of Britain Will Not Forget, from Young and Damned and Fair. I open each one, uh, each chapter, with an epigraph of a piece of literature that I liked or a contemporary quote. This one comes from Percy Bischelli's Ozymandias. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. No thing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Oatland's Palace, one of Henry VIII's favourite spots for hunting, lay within the Hampton Court Chase, a 10,000-acre private royal hunting route linking several palaces and lodges which had recently been completed at enormous cost because, as his councillors explained after his death, His Highness waxed heavy with sickness, age and corpulences of the body, and might not travail so readily abroad, and was constrained to have his game and pleasure ready at hand. It was there at Oatlands that Henry planned to spend what we might call his honeymoon. Catherine cannot have seen much of her fiancé in the run-up to the wedding. He remained in London for most of July to host the visitors from the Habsburg Empire then to testify to the illegality of his marriage to Anne of Cleves. Catherine's wedding was even more private than Anne's, and the formal announcement was not made until the 8th of August. In the meantime, there were rumours in London that Catherine was already pregnant, and derogatory comments were making the rounds at foreign courts, fuelled by their respective ambassador's assessment of the situation which included the guess that the wedding only took place because Catherine had found herself enceinte. By marrying Catherine, Henry VIII received, or excuse me, achieved, the dubious distinction of becoming the most married Christian monarch in European history. The previous record had been held by Emperor Charles IV, who had managed to avoid Henry's reputation for matrimonial misadventures by the natural deaths that resulted in three of his four wives predeceasing him. Despite their relief that Cleves had lost its most powerful protector, At the Habsburg court, Henry's latest matrimonial hiccup was cited as proof that murky and megalomaniacal morals had been the real reason for his rupture with the Vatican. In a letter to the Emperor's secretary, a Spanish governor wrote, a very good joke of the King of England again divorcing a queen. Not in vain does he pretend and assume spiritual authority that he may at will decide upon matrimonial cases whenever he himself is concerned. Although this is a wicked and abominable thing to do, yet it must be owed that concerning, as it does, the Duke of Cleves, the Queen's brother, it is not so bad after all. Only a few ladies and gentlemen of the Privy Chamber were present as witnesses as Henry and Catherine stood before Bishop Bonner, the Bishop of London. As at her baptism, the church required a declaration of consent, and both answered that they wished to be married. Henry, his high voice issuing from thin lips, vowed, I, Henry, take thee to my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Catherine replied, I, Catherine, take thee to my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to be bonny and buxom, in bed and at board, till death us do part, and thereto I plight thee my troth. As her slightly longer vow made clear, a wife had a certain set of duties and emotional obligations when it came to serving her husband. When the ring slid over her slender finger, guided by the bejeweled and plump hands of the forty-nine-year-old groom, she became his property. A king ruled over his subjects, but they were not his possessions. In contrast, a wife had no separate legal authority—excuse me, no separate legal identity—to her husband, and she could not even leave a will of her own until she became a widow. If her wedding night at Oaklands was the first time Catherine slept with Henry VIII, she cannot have had a particularly pleasant evening, even disregarding the necessary inconvenience of pretending to lose her virginity. Since his third marriage, Henry's physical appetite had grown, his sporting capacities had faded, and his waist had expanded. An ulcer on his leg regularly oozed pus. Rather than heal, it periodically closed over and when that happened, the king's face became discoloured with the agony he endured. Mercifully for Catherine, the man in the long embroidered nightgown who climbed into bed next to her was not syphilitic, despite how frequently that has been asserted in the years since Henry's death. The idea that Henry VIII had syphilis was not suggested prior to an article published in 1888, which did not make much of an impact even then until its findings were revived in The Medical Problems of Henry VIII, a piece written by the Danish historian Ove Brinch in 1958. Brinch argued that some portraits from later in Henry's life show a ridge in his nose consistent with a syphilitic gumma. Syphilis was a relatively new phenomenon in the 16th century, with the result that when it appeared, it was hardly ever misdiagnosed, and it was nearly always treated with mercury. None of Henry VIII's medical records which survive intact contain bills or lists of mercury. Furthermore, he did not exhibit many of the symptoms associated with secondary or tertiary syphilis. Along with its its fixture in popular culture, the syphilis myth was recently resurrected in biographies of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, despite having been conclusively disproved decades ago, when Henry's medical history and records were thoroughly examined in two mid-century texts, Frederick Chamberlain's book, The Private Character of Henry VIII, published in 1932, and Sir Arthur McNulty's Henry VIII, A Difficult Patient, published in 1952. I inflected the wrong way there, 1932 and 1952, but I am inflected on the 19. We'll learn to live with it. Chamberlain compiled a full medical report on Henry's physical symptoms, his wife's miscarriages, his children's health and the medical treatments he received. And he sent it to medical experts in Britain and the United States with the request that they return an opinion on whether it was possible, in light of what they had read, for Henry VIII to have suffered from syphilis. Sir Darcy Power, vice-president of the Royal College of Surgeons, wrote back, There does not seem to be the least reason on the surgical side for supposing that he ever had syphilis. John Whitridge, Whitridge Williams, professor of obstetrics at Johns Hopkins University of Maryland, replied, that there is nothing in the histories of either Mary or Elizabeth Henry's daughters to indicate that they had congenital syphilis. Dr. Eardley Lancelot-Holland, editor of the Journal of Obstetrics and Gynaecology of the British Empire, told Chamberlain that in his opinion it is highly improbable that Henry suffered from syphilis, and Professor Philip F. Williams at the University of Pennsylvania concluded that any evidence trying to link Henry with the disease was insufficient. Were there other problems for Catherine to deal with on her wedding night? Henry's private life was so improbable that it has provoked many theories as possible explanations, some more plausible than others. One which has gained widespread credence in academic accounts of Henry's life over the last 50 years is the idea that he was more or less impotent as he entered middle age. This is a more tenable theory than the one that posits he was syphilitic. The more thoughtful exponents of the impotence theory argue that the psychological pressures to sire and heir led to physical problems masked by a larger than life personality, which, according to one of Henry's recent biographers, covered up this weakness with male braggadocio. There were moments when the mask seemed to slip. When the Habsburg's ambassador made an innocuous comment about small families, the king shouted, Am I not a man? Am I not? Am I not? Much of Henry's behaviour seems explicable when looked at in this light. From minor details in his everyday appearance, even someone ambivalent about the nuances of Freud might wonder at the increasing size of Henry's codpieces. To the public humiliations he inflicted on his first, second and fourth wives, and the neurotic preoccupation with sexual performance that pushed Henry to flout convention by choosing wives he already knew himself to be attracted to. Speculation about Henry's poor performance as a lover has resulted in several other theories about the king and his marriages, the oddest of which is the claim that his wives, faced with their husband's impotence, took to adultery to provide an heir and save themselves. This theory holds water only if the essential facts of sex, impotence and conception are ignored. If Henry had been impotent, he would have known that his wife's pregnancy was the result of infidelity. If Henry was affected by intermittent erectile dysfunction rather than long-term impotence, any wife tempted to stray for the sake of a child would have been more sensible to cling to the hope that her husband would perform again soon, as he clearly had performed at one time with all of them except Anne of Cleves. Childlessness might end a queen's career. Adultery certainly would. That was an extract from my book, Young and Damned and Fair, a biography of Queen Catherine Howard, which is available for purchase in hardback and paperback, and also in audiobook narrated by the brilliant Jenny Funnel. And with that, on to our interview with Jean Findlay. (laughs) Jean Findlay is a biographer and novelist. Her latest novel, The Queen's Lender, brings readers into the richly drawn world of the union of the crowns, when in 1603, the Scottish, English, and Irish crowns were seemingly unified in the person of Scotland's King James VI, who became James I in Wales, Ireland, and England. Imagining these events from the perspective of jeweler george harriet who was close to the king and to james's brilliant reckless extravagant and charismatic queen anna of denmark the queen's lender has been praised by historians including sarah fraser author of the prince who would be king the new biography of james and anna's eldest son Fraser said that The Queen's Lender is a stunning novel about the birth of the United Kingdom that demonstrates the scholarship of the author as well as her imaginative power. By way of a content warning, the following interview contains discussions of a loss of pregnancy, which some listeners may find distressing. Jean, uh, welcome to Single Malt History and thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: To begin with, let's talk about George Harriet, your lead and pivot. Who is this character?
1: George was the jeweller to uh, James VI of Scotland and who later became James I of England. And he was also the founder of a school. Um, he's the pivotal character in this novel. He, he, he's, he sees this world through his eyes. Um um, and he saw the important union of the United Kingdom. So um, I came back to Edinburgh in 2014 when they were um, voting on Scottish independence and people were relating it all the time to the Act of Parliament of 1707. But in fact, what was much more important was the was the Union of the Crowns in 1603. And this was a, a, a cataclysmic coming together of two countries, um, which George Harriet witnessed. So um, it was a kind of echo through time that fascinated me um, when I started writing it in 2014.
0: The novel, I mean, it's been praised by historians, I should point out. um, I've just said to listeners about Sarah Fraser's praise for it. And the novel's been praised for its evocation of life in 17th century Britain, Scotland and England, as they come together. Can you describe to us the world in which your character exists? And what is it about that time period that proves so richly fascinating?
1: Well, it was an elaborately decorated, um, a visceral, but a very divided time. It was just at the end of the Reformation where... um, it, people lived in a state of fear about whether they were in the right part of the religion or not. Um, uh, um, and many, many things were going on. But what um, fascinated me most was language. Um, I just my my previous book had been about a translator. He was a translator of Proust, and that was actually a factual book, a biography. But this, but um, James VI um, loved translation, and as a child, he'd wanted to translate the Psalms. Um, And um, when he eventually got to London and got some money together, he commissioned the entire translation of the Bible, as we know, um, the James VI translation. He also gave Shakespeare his first job for life. And, um, And there was a huge coming together of many languages at this time in London When the when the two kingdoms collided, so the Scots court speaking Middle Scots, and James and his wife Anna of Denmark, Anna came over only speaking Danish, but she could speak German, and James could speak German. So their mutual language was German. He spoke to, and she had learnt uh, Middle Scots, which was very like Danish. And James himself had grown up speaking Latin and Greek, and learning having to learn the European languages. While he was at court, his best friend was a French nobleman who they believe seduced him, actually, as a young boy. And um, it was this sort of great mix of languages which suddenly um, hit London and turned English into, it it was the foundations of what has now become the dominant cultural force in the entire world, the English language. It's just that great excitement about what was happening. Of course, it was also the Renaissance. That's what was happening in Europe at the time, this great rebirth of um, ideas. I mean, obviously,
0: with, with George Harriet's job and connections, we are dealing with uh, proximity to the upper crust of the social hierarchy, and that's, that's you know visual splendour of the Stuart dynasty that you have alluded to. During your research for the novel... Uh, what did you find out about that milieu that particularly fascinated you?
1: Well, what was really interesting about hierarchies is that they were very different in Scotland from what they were in England, and mm. that caused a bit of a, a bit of trouble. So James was was had, had, was was far less hierarchical than his predecessor in England, Elizabeth. So James in Scotland was was people were used to um, coming in and. and and speaking to the king without much um, preamble. Um, And of course, there was a lot of usurping going on because of that, a lot of the nobles believed that they could overthrow the king and he lived in difficult and dangerous times. Um, Queen Elizabeth was far more protected and she was uh, approached by many people on their knees. She was the deified queen, the virgin queen. Um, and, And when James came to London, he had to learn to change his approach to hierarchy um he had he, he still had the common touch but he had to change that and become a king become someone um a king by um uh by di- by divine right
0: you've you've alluded to this obviously with you know this extraordinary mix of languages at the time in the novel, one of the things that does come out really clearly is the sense of voice and tone. C- can you tell us a little about how you tried to make the language and dialect authentic?
1: Well, they did, they were speaking Middle Scots, so I wanted to make there a difference, a difference between the language of the Scottish court and the language of the English court. And of course, it is inevitably a, a, a snob difference, too, because the, the, the much wealthier and superior English court. Felt that they were well above this sort of barbaric language that had come into their court, and so it, it creates quite a lot of humour as well. Um, and um, so, I mean, but I couldn't actually put Middle Scots into the mouths of the Scots because we wouldn't be able to read it. It had to be accessible. So, I used the language which is in the current online Scotch dictionary, which takes um, various. Um, so it's a kind of pick and mix of of language. Um, But uh, the Scots is very onomatopoeic and colourful, and it makes for a much richer read, I think. Mm,
0: It it absolutely does. And speaking of uh, richer reads, uh, one of my personal favourite underrated British historical figures is James VI, Queen Anna of Denmark. What is your impression of her?
1: She is a, you know, she was being regarded by historians as sort of stupid and vain, but, um, and she's very overlooked. I mean, she came over as a teenager and and had to grow up in these very strange times and languages. Um, But ultimately, she was a really cultivated woman. She came from the Danish Empire. Denmark had an empire then before Britain had an empire. And every palace in Denmark had its own court playwright which is probably where James got the idea to appoint a court playwright when he got to London. Um, And uh, every palace in Denmark had not only the playwright, but um, their their musicians and their philosophers. And she'd grown up to the age of 15 with that. So when she got a bit of money, which was when she came to England, she set up the most um, amazing um, patronage of the arts. She uh, she was a person who uh, organised she called them masks they were phenomenal uh theater pieces with Inigo Jones as her as her designer set designer that's where he started started as a set designer under Queen Anne before he even went to study architecture um it was under her patronage that he went off to Italy to study Palladio but um and also Ben Johnston wrote the wrote her plays for her and they were incredibly expensive, the equivalent of millions of pounds today for each production. So I suppose on one hand, it was a phenomenal waste of money. She wasn't a great person for giving money to the poor, but but she did um, patronise the arts in a big way and bring on and nurture people who we regard today as, as great artists.
0: Was there an element of the story you particularly enjoyed researching or writing or maybe a character you especially enjoyed uh, writing?
1: Yeah, I particularly like writing George's wives because absolutely yeah. not very little is known about them apart from their names and their dates of death. And they both died young. The two his first two wives died young, um, probably I, I expect of childbirth and through through childbirth. So that's sort of well described in the novel. Um, and um uh, to try and get into the minds of women at times quite is quite difficult because of course. Not a lot of them wrote memoirs, um, um, but that's—it's uh, um, very sad, really. And then, of course, Queen Anne herself, having given, she gave birth to seven children, only three of whom survived, and she deliberately destroyed her sixth child because she was so. Um, Annoyed at the fact that she wasn't allowed to see her children after she'd given birth to them, they were all put away in palaces to be looked after and safeguarded by other people. And when um, she was finally um, allowed to go and visit Henry, um, she got to the Palace of Stirling, but when there, she was allowed to see him, but she was not allowed to take him to stay with him or take him to england with her the original plan was that the princes were to stay in scotland and she was so angry at this that she beat her belly with her sixth child and induced a miscarriage i mean the passion within that poor young woman um so we 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 just we know these these little bits um and then i suppose i've reconstructed the world around them
0: it's it is an absolutely extraordinary novel, Jean. It's one of the, I mean, just the most extraordinary, brilliant, colorful evocation of that time period. And it's not one that gets enough attention, I think. Um, So for our listeners who want to to find more, read more, where can they find you uh, online and on social media?
1: Um, On social media, if you go to the publisher, Scotland Street Press, you go at Scott Street Press is on Twitter and Instagram. And from there, you can learn where I'm going to be speaking. I'm going to be speaking at I Write Literary Festival, at the Borders Book Festival and at Winter Words and any others that come up will all be advertised on on Instagram and on Twitter on at Scott Street Press, Um, but also on the website of Scotland Street Press.
0: Brilliant. Well, Jean, thank you so much for your time. This, I mean, it's I so enjoyed the book uh, and I think our listeners will too. So I very much appreciate you stopping by.
1: Thank you very much. It's been good talking to you.
0: My thanks to Jean Findlay for discussing her novel The Queen's Lender with us. That's Scotland Street Press for more information on Jean's work and appearances. And join me next week when I'll be joined by the acclaimed historian Professor James Wolven, co-editor for 20 years of the academic journal Slavery and Abolition, who'll be discussing the ways in which the African slave trade and diaspora transformed the world and his new book, A World Transformed, Slavery in the Americas and the Origins of Global Power. That's the next episode of Single Malt History, which will be available on Tuesday, 2nd August. In the meantime, I hope you and yours remain happy and healthy. Thank you for your time.